Professor Thessalonians 3 and 4, we've got Paul's continued emphasis upon the, the coming of Christ. And why in Thessalonians does he keep on talking in every chapter and several times in every chapter about the return of Christ? Well, there's a, a kind of a, a paradox there, interesting paradox, that he talks so warmly and so enthusiastically about these Thessalonians, and yet reading between the lines, it's quite clear that all was not completely well in this ecclesia. Look over to chapter 5, verse 14. We exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak. So they were weak, they were feeble-minded, they were unruly within the ecclesia. And when he says in chapter 5, uh, verse 5, that because we are children of the day, we are not of darkness, verse 6, therefore let us not sleep as do others. So it would appear that there was a sleepy attitude there. And as I say, reading between the lines, he talks in 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Thessalonians about the need to shun immorality, um, not to uh, sponge off other people, etc. And all the time he's exhorting them not to do those things because the coming of Christ is near. And in any case, because Christ shall come at some point and we shall come before him. And yet he's so enthusiastic about these Thessalonians. And before we move on to think uh, more specifically about what he actually says about the coming of Christ, let's just remind ourselves of that. This uh, complete enthusiasm that he has for his brethren. And seeing that we cannot condemn, we cannot say that any baptized believer shall not be in God's kingdom, we therefore are left with no alternative but to assume that they will be. That's a great weight off our mind, really, that we don't have to judge and condemn people anymore. And also, it elevates, I think, ecclesial life, that, that we assume that every one of our baptized brethren will be in God's kingdom, because we cannot say they are not, that they will not be. Now, some of Paul's uh, intelligence, his uh, spiritual maturity, his perception, uh, his speed of thinking and uh, dealing with situations, life in a sense must have been for him very lonely as it very often is for people like that. But he talks that in chapter 3 verse 1, when we could no longer forbear we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and we sent Timothy our brother to establish you and to comfort you. As if he's saying, I really couldn't bear to be without Timothy, but in the end I, I gave up and I sent him, because I so love you. And he, he talks, as I say, very warmly um, about, them, about them all and about others. And he, he talks there in, uh, <clears throat> in verse 10 about how night and day he prays exceedingly that we might see your face. I don't think, by the way, that means that literally all night and literally all day he was praying for them. I think it's an allusion to the uh, morning and evening uh, sacrifices that were made. And he's saying that my sacrifice of prayer is for you that we might see you and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith so <clears throat> he recognizes that there was something lacking and yet he says in verse 7 we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith but their faith he says in verse 10 had something lacking in it now this is, I think, the real sign of, of maturity in somebody, that you can take encouragement from those whom you consider or who you know 
to be somewhat lacking in their faith. It may be doctrinally, it may be um, in their practical way of life, etc. And yet you can be comforted and encouraged in all your affliction and distress by their faith. And he says, verse 8, For we live if you stand fast in the Lord. So his life was so tied up with theirs. This is the very opposite of the attitude which says that uh, I am somehow uh, separate from you in my mind, I'm cut off from you, I'm looking after my own relationship with God, and that's uh, that's it. And uh, yet he he needed his brethren, and you see that really when he talks really in verse 2 there about how much he needs Timothy, that I couldn't bear to be without Timothy, but I eventually sent him to to you. He really did uh, need him. And you notice there in verse 2 how he calls Timothy my fellow labourer. And there's a, um, <clears throat> there's a, a, a Greek uh, little word, syn, S-Y-N, which means together. And uh, you get it in synergy, etc., and synergos, my co-worker, is what he uses there. And it's, the point's been made <clears throat> by F.F. Uh, F. Bruce that if you put Paul's letters in chronological order, as far as we, we can work it out, his later letters reveal a marked and a progressive fondness for Greek words that are compounded from syn, this together, synergos, co-worker. Sin Eichmalatus, co-prisoner, fellow prisoner. And he uses this phrase about so many people, about Priscilla, Aquila, Timothy, Titus, Marcus, Archippus, Luke, Aristarchus, Tychicus, Epaphras, Demas, Paphroditus, Clement, Philemon, Euodius, Syntyche, etc. And I think you see then that Paul, in his time of maturity, realized more and more how he needed his brethren. You remember when he was first baptized, he pushed off into the wilderness on his own. And I think that this is really a sign of our maturity, that we come to need, even desperately need, our brother. And yet, that is not to say that we do not stand alone before God, and we don't have our own personal relationship with him. That is so. And that aloneness is all the same necessary. Incidentally, where he, he says there, 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 1, that in the end he gave in, he sent Timothy to be with them, and he was left at Athens alone. And yet what happened when he was alone in Athens? Well, in Acts 17, uh, the passage is Acts 17, 16 to 22, it says that when he was alone in Athens, his conscience was stirred within him. And he stands alone on Mars Hill and takes Christ, as it were, to, to the masses, all on his own. And I always find that picture of Paul on Mars Hill alone witnessing to them all uh, really very inspirational. And yet it was when he was alone that his conscience worked and kicked in. So although, as I say, there's these two strands here of needing your brethren, using the, the sin compound there, my synergos, my co-worker, etc., etc., um, it is also necessary to still have that ultimate uh, kind of existential aloneness so that that is when conscience really kicks in and so then he has this great love for them and I've said that he is um, 
assuming, and he does this in all his letters, assuming that his readership will be in the kingdom, that they will be saved. You see it particularly in, uh, when he writes to the Corinthians, who are very, very weak. But he still writes very positively about them. We shall judge angels. We are going to be in the kingdom. And so therefore, we, brethren, ought to live uh, an appropriate life right now. I fear, he says, that as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds might be corrupted from the innocence that is in Christ. And yet, they were hardly the innocent Eve in Eden, getting drunk at the breaking of bread, committing fornication, divided, bitter, angry, the rest of it. And yet he sees them as being in Christ, in the same way as God looked at him and looks at us individually, as if we are Jesus. So that is how we are to look at others. Now, this idea that he's assuming that his readership are amongst those who will be saved when the Lord comes, this, I think, is crucial to understanding the difficult passage in chapter 4, starting in, uh, in verse 14 down to the end, really, where he seems to assume that we all will be saved. Verse 17 of chapter 4, the dead in Christ shall rise, then we which are alive and remain shall be snatched away together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. He's assuming that they're all going to be saved. And he's talking there about the hope of resurrection, resurrection to eternal life. And he assumes that that is what will happen to all of us. And he he says in chapter 5, verse 5, You are all the children of light. And the children of the day, we are not of the night, nor of darkness. So then, he's clearly counting them all as children of the light, children of the kingdom. Even though, as I said, just going on there in verse 14, clearly there were, um, of chapter 5, there were amongst them the unruly, the feeble-minded, the weak. And uh, he said in chapter 4, verse 10, that there was something lacking in their faith. And all the exhortation about... uh, not sleeping and watching, you could read that that is implying that that is in fact how they were. So then, he says then that we shall be snatched away, chapter 4, verse 16, um, when the Lord comes, uh, sorry, verse, uh, yeah, verse 17, and we shall uh, be with him in the clouds in the air. Now, this idea of the Lord having clouds with him at his coming, I think fits in with uh, a few other passages. The Lord Jesus is going to come with clouds. And what are those clouds? I don't think it means raindrops. Um, I think that these clouds is the the great cloud of witnesses, of believers. Hebrews 12, verse 1. You've got it again in Jude 14. The Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment. Now, you could say this is the angels, and I don't rule that out. But the clouds, which are formed, it seems there, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, are of the believers. Now, you've got a similar kind of picture, really, in, uh, in Joel 3.11, talking about the, the last days and the deliverance of Jerusalem. Thither cause your mighty ones to come down, that is, to Jerusalem. 
Obadiah 21. Saviors shall come up or shall appear on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. And uh, Zechariah 14, verse 5, uh, again very clearly in the context of uh, the coming of the Lord at, uh, at the last day when it seems Israel has been invaded and uh, are, are desperate, that there will be this uh, appearance of a, a cloud around the, uh, around the Lord. Now, <clears throat> You, just to throw another passage in there, Daniel 7. Jesus comes with the faithful, symbolized as clouds, along with the angels, to the judgment seat. Now, what are we to make of this? I can understand the uh, suggestion that it does refer to the angels. <clears throat> Jesus taught that he sends the angels to gather his people. And so if each of us has a guardian angel, and I see that as a perfectly biblical idea, not just a, a nice idea, then our angels come and gather each of us and take us with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we would then, as it were, be part of those clouds <clears throat> with which the Lord comes to Jerusalem uh, to deliver his people and in, in judgment on the earth. Now, you may like to throw in there John 14, verse 3, I will come again and take you to be with me. It's very similar ideas, really. Um, he goes on to say that where I am, there you may be also. First of Thessalonians 4 here, in, in verse 14, Then which sleep in Jesus will God bring up with him. In verse 17, And so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's like that where I am, there you may be also. So, the idea of literally going up into the sky and coming down, as it were, in, uh, in Jerusalem is possibly implied in Luke 17, 36, 37, where the, the disciples ask the obvious question when Jesus says that one should be taken and the other left. And they say, well, how? Where? And Jesus says, well, wherever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. So the idea is that as an eagle mounts up, uh, in, into the sky and travels through the air and comes down to the carcass. So he says, in that way, don't worry about how you're going to get there. You will be snatched away and you will go through the air and come down there where you need to be. No need to go and buy an air ticket or, or whatever. So then, Jesus is going to come with the angels who are going to come and, uh, and gather us. And we're told that we will meet the Lord, verse 17 here, in the air. Now, this part of uh, 1 Thessalonians, particularly chapter 5, but also here in chapter 4, is full of allusion to the Olivet Prophecy in Matthew 24 about the coming of the Lord and to the parables that follow that are sort of appended as a an appendix, really, to the Olivet Prophecy in Matthew 25, the wise and foolish virgins in particular. Now, Matthew 25, verse 26, the wise virgins go out to meet him. Go out to meet him, they're told. And it's the same word for meet that you've got here in 1 Thessalonians 4:17. We shall meet the Lord in the air. Now, putting those two passages together... 
I would suggest that what happens then is that the cry goes up, he's back. This is in terms of the uh, wise and foolish virgins parable. And the faithful go out to meet him. And as they make that decision that, sure, I will go to meet him, I'm not going to go and uh, buy uh, more oil for my lamp, I will just go to meet him, they are confirmed in that decision. And they are snatched away in the air, and I take that as literal because I, I don't think that the language that we've got here in 1 Thessalonians 4 particularly invites us to read it in a highly symbolic way. We will be snatched away in the air and meet the Lord in the air. That's what it says, and I'm happy to, uh, to, to run with that. So our attitude in that split second when we know for sure he's back can be, you know, the resurrection, where we think, wow, last I remember I was lying on a bed dying of cancer, or last I remember was that uh, car coming towards me, or whatever it is, and, well, now I've been resurrected. He's back. Go to meet him. And whether we are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord, and you're uh, in the middle of doing something, and suddenly the trumpet sounds, and he's back, and the angel is there, go to meet him, or as I say, whether you've been resurrected and you realize this is it, go to meet him, your attitude in that split second, will I think that will be the decider for our eternal destiny? Because in that response to that news that he's back, we will really show who we are, whether we really believe in his love, whether we love him so much and are confident in his love and are secured in his grace that, well, sure, I just want to go and meet him. Sure, I'm not ready. I've let my lamp go out, but all the same, I love him and I want to be with him. All those that love his appearing, Paul says to Timothy, will be there. And, it, you know, that that's, um, doesn't just mean, oh, yeah, well, I love his appearing, I'm okay. Uh, in that moment when the Lord comes and we have to show by our instinctive reaction whether we love his appearing or not then our, yeah, that is the summation really of your whole life and your whole relationship with him if let's say all you've really uh, understood about the Christian life is a bunch of theology that you've endlessly argued about uh, with other people but you've never known Jesus and you know I'm not saying that applies to anybody but you know it really could, uh, it really, really could, then will you really want to go to see him when suddenly you are alone with him and uh, the angel? And Well, you know, the angel says, you know, do you want to go to meet him? Or, you know, go to meet him. And do you really believe in forgiveness? Do you have a relationship with him? Are you really sure that actually there is no sin or failure that you have committed and not only committed but uh, your whole attitude of life your way of life uh, that you have lived are you sure that that does not separate you from him and that if he comes all you want in the world is to go to meet him you know it's like remember Lot's wife she sort of went but she didn't want to and she looked back um, or it could be that your problem is materialism and that in that moment of resurrection or if you're amongst those who are alive and remain um, the Lord's appearing you think, oh, what happened to my car? what happened to my house? Um, 
you know, it it sounds pathetic to say it, but there's going to be some people, like Lot's wife, for whom that is so important. And the fact that Jesus has come back is not the, the dominating joy in their lives. So, in that split-second moment, we will really make our own judgment. Do you want to go and be with him, or not? Or you want to hang around a bit? Get oil in your lamps, put your makeup on, do your hair up pretty. No. If we want... If we love him more than anything else in the world, sure, I will go. And we will be confirmed in that by being snatched away. This makes sense of Matthew 24:31 that the angels will come and gather together his elect. His elect. And it would appear from that verse to be a, a specific gathering of the faithful. And as I said, uh, Paul is here writing in 1 Thessalonians 4 from the perspective of um, the faithful, assuming that we will all be saved and in his kingdom. There's another verse you may like to, just as your homework, work through. It's in Revelation 11, verse 2, sorry, verse 12. They, and the context seems to be the faithful, the persecuted believers of the last days, they heard a great voice from heaven, 1 Thessalonians 4:16. the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. Um, they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. 1 Thessalonians 4, they will be snatched away, caught up. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud caught up in the clouds and their enemies beheld them so you may like to just factor that in now where people get confused is sort of worrying about the time scale so how is all this going to happen whilst we're doing all that what's going to happen to the unworthy to the rejected how are they going to get to judgment all this kind of stuff and I want to suggest that the time scale should not be an issue because the meaning of time will, I say, have to be collapsed. I would just assume that it will be collapsed because either it is or it isn't. And if it isn't, and uh, the whole thing is going to be done in time as we now know it, I mean, there's going to be a line one by one we come before Jesus and have this interview and then the next one comes and the next one and you know how's it going to be done from A to Z or you know by history do the Jews go first or last or whatever and uh, once you start going down that road then you get into this idea of a 40 year judgment in Sinai with the I'm not being facetious I've heard I heard this said in fact I had to translate this for the brother who was coming out with all this at a a Russian Bible school, so I actually had to pay attention for the change. Um, he was suggesting like a 40-year judgment and the sisters will all be knitting uh, knitting stuff for the Jews. <laughs> I was thinking, right, maybe that's like the punishment for the rejected or something. But, um, you know, and it, it all got pretty bizarre in his speculation because he was wedded to the idea of a, a, a literal timescale. And um, in the questions afterwards, someone said, and I didn't translate it, like, are we going to be allowed to smoke? Um, like, you know, you've got to wait in line for judgment. I mean, goodness. So I really just don't think it, it can happen it, it, in, in literal time. It just raises a whole raft of issues and questions. 
And there, there's plenty of reason to, to think that time will be changed in its uh, application to us. Uh, we looked at Zechariah 14 earlier, or I mentioned it. Uh, there's a little indication there, I, I think. Verse 6, it shall come to pass on that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. Not sure what that means, but it could be talking about this collapsing of, of time. Maybe we'll talk about that afterwards, but uh, the point is that don't get phased by the time aspect of it. The essential point that we are to take with us, particularly as we come to, to think about the Lord who loved us and died for us and to try to focus our minds upon him, is that in that moment when he comes, will we have believed enough in his love for me so that in that moment, sure, let us go to meet him immediately. And really all our episodes of breaking bread and focusing upon him and ourselves in a sense, as you inevitably do, your own failures and dysfunctions and his love, all these things are playing their part in leading us to that final moment when, when Jesus comes, go to meet him, sure. I know that I'm not as I should be, but I shall go. And the whole point is that Jesus died in the way that he did, as Paul says, to commend God's love to us. Of course, our salvation could have been possible in a multitude of different ways, but God chose the cross, the crucifixion of his only beloved son, to commend his love to us, to try to persuade us of how much he loves us. And insofar as we get the point, then when the Lord comes, as come he will, and each of us here will have that experience of meeting him and being asked to go to meet him, more to the point, in that moment, in that split second, we will go because we know that, quite simply, he loves me more than all my sins and failures. <laughs>